Welcome to chapel, uh, and welcome to February. Can you believe we're already two weeks into the semester, we're rolling? Uh, I'm guessing you're feeling that in the classroom. Uh, and, and just so you know, there's, there's a ton happening in February, a ton going on. Uh, if you don't know what's happening on campus outside of the classroom, there's tons of places to find it, from Stall Talk to the weekly email I send out to geneva.edu slash student events. Um, know that every day of the week there's things happening on campus because we know this semester more than any, it's easy to feel like, hey, this is even harder than I'm used to. And we need moments and we need times to just connect with each other and to take a break uh, from, from the day-to-day the -day monotony. So um, check out those things. Also, a few, I've got a lot of announcements today. I'm gonna try to keep them short. Uh, the second thing is to know that RA applications are due Monday. If you're interested in being an RA, you should apply by Monday. So know they're, they're due. Uh, and then finally, February is also Black History Month. And one of the things, if we as Geneva don't do a good job of helping our students uh, connect issues of, of race and culture to their faith, then, then I think as we send you out, we're not sending you out as strong as we could. So maybe this month, uh, you, take a, you take a risk to, to grow a little bit in your understanding of race from a biblical perspective. We've got things going on all month. Tonight, there's, a, there's actually going to be a GVAL series uh, that focuses. It's called Monumental Crossroads. It's at 7 p.m. in John White Chapel tonight. And we're going to talk about uh, Confederate statues. There's a documentary we're going to watch. And then we're going to talk about, hey, should they or should they not come down? And we have a panel uh, that will be there tonight. On Friday, we're going to show the movie Harriet at 8 p.m. in Sky on Friday. If you haven't seen the movie about Harriet Tubman, I thought I knew who she was. And then I watched this documentary, I mean, I watched this movie, and I was like, whoa, I want to be her. So um, if you uh, have not seen it, come on, on Friday. But know that all month we're going to be celebrating Black History Month, and I invite you to come along with us. Uh, now let's begin chapel. We're going to start uh, by jumping into the Psalms. Good morning to you. After that, we have to jump into the Psalms, don't we? The theme this morning is God's immutability, the fact that our God never changes. His character is never going to change. What an amazing truth. In Psalm 102, the psalmist is suffering, suffering greatly. And one of the comforts he looks to is God's immutability. We are human, therefore we know suffering. So let's take comfort in God's immutability with Psalm 102. If you're able, please stand and let's read from Psalm 102 together. Let's read together. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to musically experience Psalm 121 now. Um, God's immutability is applied here when it comes to the way God watches over his children. He is so unchanging in the way he watches over us and takes care of us and shepherds us that the psalm draws attention to the fact that our God never even sleeps. There's not one second, one moment, where he even grows weary to the sense he needs to close his eyes. Sleep is an interesting thing. I, I confess I don't always sleep well. I know seasons where I don't sleep well at all, and I think it's because I carry burdens. I get uh, anxious. I, I worry. Um, as my pastor is quick to remind me, though, what is sleep except the ability to close my eyes, 
and slip off for a time, trusting that God is able to run his world in a good way. Isn't this what sleep is? But our God doesn't need this at all because he is perfect and immutable. So let's experience Psalm 121c together. Good morning. My name is uh, Vitaly Seikin. I'm a new engineering faculty here. Um, this is my second semester, and I will be leading you in uh, the reading of Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. So, Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son and Lord, who is received by the Holy Ghost born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again, dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I, I thank you for uh, today. I thank, the, thank you that we have made it uh, to February. Um, in these times, I ask you, my Lord, uh, that you would bless the faculty and the staff here in Geneva College, give us the wisdom and, and the strength to, uh, to teach and to finish the semester strong. I pray that the students here would uh, also be strong um, uh, to finish the semester, to learn everything that we want to teach them. My Lord, I ask you that you would give us health, uh, that you will protect us from all the sicknesses. And in this uh, time, uh, I pray, my Lord, that you would um, open Geneva College, uh, make it an open community uh, so that we can serve the uh, greater Beaver Falls community here that will be open to the needs of the people around us. In uh, Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Uh, let's read the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
that delivers us from the evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isaiah 43, 8-13 Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this, and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to all who have uh, led in worship so far this morning. I appreciate that very much, the selection of the Psalms and also the uh, selection of the different passages of scripture have been spot on to our subject today. Now, um, the truth of the matter is, in baseball terms, I'm a pinch hitter. You guys know what a pinch hitter is, don't you? A pinch hitter is someone who comes to bat for someone else who, um, in a sense, is not there. So you were to have Dr. Traup here this morning, but he's gone off flying away, and so you're stuck with the old phrase as the pinch hitter. Now, typically in baseball, pinch hitters don't have the same level of batting average as the regular player, but the long and short of it is um, Dr. Traup must think that I'll be up to the task of sharing with you something about what it means to know God this morning uh, and taken from this particular passage that I've chosen from the book of James. So I'd like you to follow along with me. Um, there are pew Bibles around you. We're going to be looking at this text and a variety of other texts as we try to figure out this grand doctrine of the immutability of God that my dear, dear, dear impish friend Matt Kikasola has already uh, suggested was the topic for this morning. So pay attention to God's word. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and no shadow due to change, no shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh God in heaven, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that you would come to us, O oh Spirit of grace. Refine us, move us to be obedient to your word, to hear uh, the clarity of your uh, inspired author's words to us, the message of not being deceived, of believing rightly and truly about the everlasting God who has called us to be his children. And so, Lord, we ask that your mercy will rest upon all of us, that we, whether gathered in this sanctuary or throughout the campus or on Zoom this morning, would be attentive to the voice of your cry to us to repent and to follow you. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, who is our strength and our redeemer, because we pray this. In the name of the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. 
Now, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity that some of you have read, and maybe even that you've read with me or you read in your homes or in high school along the way. As Lewis moves into the last section of that particular book in which he talks about theological principles related to God and their impact on us, he makes a rather striking statement for us in modern Christendom. The statement that he makes is simply this, that to understand theological truths have a practical effect on our lives. Now, our propensity or our tendency is to look for those practical books that are simply going to give us certain kinds of insights and directions in how it is we should go about living the Christian life. For Lewis, the deep theological truths, the deep theological texts from people like Athanasius or Augustine or others like Aquinas or Anselm or John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards, those books contain in them such a richness about the character and the being of God that they must have a practical effect on our lives. So instead of just reading how it is that we ought to pray or how, the, how it is that we go through the steps of growing in piety, what we need to do is realize in a deeper kind of form the grandeur, the greatness, the incredible excellence of this God who is triune, who's called us into being, and who's called us to be his own. That's what I'd like to suggest this morning. This passage is really a very practical passage, but it's rooted in a deep theological truth. And that deep theological truth is the immutability of God, that God does not change, that God does not alter in any kind of way. There's nothing that takes place in all of the universe that brings about some kind of, of variation in the being that God is. Now think about how important that truth has been to you. We sing in our churches, don't we? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. That language, there is no shadow of turning with thee, is taken from our text today. God's faithfulness springs from, uh, emerges from the fact that he is the immutable God. He's the changeless one. He is the one who is constant. He's not fickled. He's not foiled by our plans, by our political situation, by our environment. God is not foiled by those things. God remains constant. God remains present the same. God is the one who endures forever and ever. Therefore, we can say very practically, great is thy faithfulness, O God, our Father. Now, that particular passage reminds me of another wonderful chorus that I learned years ago. And it's actually the singing of Lamentations chapter 3, from which great is thy faithfulness comes. And it says in that uh, passage that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord our God. New every morning is the richness of knowing this immutable God. New every morning with vitality is the fresh breeze of God's character into our lives. The knowledge of the fact that God is an unchangeable, invariable being who is the ground of all existence itself. And that's what this particular writer is offering to us this morning. Now, it might be helpful, since we already know this is deep in our hymnic tradition, it's deep in the Psalter, it's a shame we couldn't sing together Psalm 102, those last several voice, voice, uh, verses about the being and the character of God lifting our uh, hearts together. Um, but, but the long and short of it is, this particular book is cast as a book of wisdom. It's one of the New Testament places where we find the notion of wisdom of Sophia so clearly revealed. If you look at the beginning uh, verses of this particular book, 
um, you'll see that uh, the writer James says, under the inspiration of God's spirit, that if any of you lack wisdom, what should he do? He should ask, because God gives wisdom liberally. Now, how can God give wisdom liberally? Well, he gives wisdom literally, the writer goes on to say, because it emerges out of his infallible, immutable, changeless character, the perfections that God has. A few uh, chapters later in verse 3, uh, he carries on that particular theme of the gift of wisdom, and he says that there are two kinds of wisdom in this world. There is a wisdom that is earthly, that's fickle, that changes constantly, that is uh, continuously disruptive in our lives. That particular wisdom is rooted in dissension, in injustice, in treating people less than they are, in uh, being racist, in being bigots. It's rooted in that kind of power brokering that brings down nations and states. And then it says, but there is a wisdom that comes from the changeless one. And that wisdom is pure and good and righteous. That wisdom produces peacemaking and not conflict in our lives. So the whole book of James, this book about wisdom, this book about how to obtain wisdom, how to get wisdom, how to be transformed by wisdom, is rooted in the notion in the first chapter of God's immutable, unchanging, persistent character. That is, that he does not, in fact, change. If we think of this particular doctrine, we might ask, well, what does it mean? It was, very, it was very interesting that Emily, right, Emily, read for us from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. You should go back and read the section beginning in verse 40 all the way up to um, the announcement of the death of the Messiah in chapter 52 at the end. In that chapter, in those chapters, a phrase repeats itself again and again and again. And that phrase is simply this. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am the first, and I am the last. I am the beginning, and I am the end. I am he who brought all things into being. I am he who judges the injustices of the world. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The doctrine or the idea of the immutability of God is rooted in the fact that God is being that is pure. That's the language that Herman Boving gives to describe who God is. God is pure, self-subsistent being. God is a being who is simple. All of his attributes are contained in the moment of God's existence. There's not a process that comes about because of uh, in the being of God. He is constant. He is secure unlike us. So the doctrine of the immutability of God that is so helpful in this particular passage is simply the statement that God is not subject to any kind of change or alteration. God's not subject to any kind of change or alteration in life. Nor is God affected by external factors in any way, shape, or form. He's not affected by the kinds of things that we are. God is not made up of accidents, as we say in philosophy, these little qualities that change or alter or come into uh, maturity or actually, uh, or actually diminish in their significance. In the word of, words of St. Augustine from the Confessions, chapter seven, or book seven, Augustine says it this way, I looked at the things below you and saw that they neither wholly are nor wholly are not. They are because they are from you and they are not because they are not you. For what truly is abides immutably forever. And what is it that truly is, or who is it that truly is but God alone? 
uh, is the argument that Augustine is making. Bavink says that we, the reason that we can rely on God in the way that we do or the way that we're called to do is because God does not change in his being. God does not change in his willing. God does not change in his knowing. He remains who he is infallibly, eternally, forever and ever without any kind of alteration at all. Every change in us ought to make us turn to the living God. So the doctrine of God's immutability, that God is changeless, becomes in this book the root of what wisdom is. Wisdom as a feature of God's character, but wisdom as that, uh, as that attitude that should, intellectual and moral attitude that should direct us in the paths of life. So a theological principle, deeply understood and rooted in the scriptures, is something that should bring life to us. Now, we could go all throughout scripture and see the proof of this particular doctrine. Let me give you a couple examples before I move into the way that uh, James is using it in this passage. Think of the book of Exodus. We come across a burning bush. Does that burning bush, is that burning bush consumed by its circumstances? Well, no, not at all. It's a theophany. It's, a, it, it's an appearance of God. It says something about the being of God who doesn't change or isn't altered in any kind of way. And then uh, a few verses later, Moses wants to know who God is. So how does God identify himself? I am that I am. I am pure being. And because I am pure being, I don't change. Now, do you guys change? Do you guys change? I, I mean, Dr. Ward over there, uh, when I first met him, he had more hair than he has now. You know, when he met me, I was six feet tall. Actually, no. <laughs> I was maybe five feet seven, and now I've shrunk down to a little lower than five feet six. You know, I've changed. My being has changed. There's alteration that has taken, uh, has taken place in my being. But according to Exodus 3, there is no change in God's being. The psalm that was read for us at the beginning that we read together, Psalm 102, is very clear about the changelessness of God. If we look at the book of Malachi, that last prophet, I sometimes call him Malachi uh, to make my Italian wife feel like there was one Italian in, uh, you know, who wrote in the Bible. Malachi says it this way, after he draws attention to the injustices of the society, after he draws his attention to oppression, after he draws his attention, after he draws the reader's attention to the way that they have, in a fickle way, handled the hired worker, the sojourner, the poor in the land who thrust aside the needy, what does he say uh, in response to their ignoring of the widow and the outcast? What does the text say? In verse 6, it says, for I am the Lord, and I do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. You get that? God doesn't change in his attitude toward the sojourner, to the poor, to the outcast, to the widow, to the oppressed. God doesn't change in his attitude towards those things is the announcement of that passage, and God is going to remain faithful to the being that he is in response to the injustices that we commit in life. Now, earlier you were encouraged to uh, go watch the movie Harriet this Friday. This really is an outstanding movie. Um, that coupled with a movie called Just Mercy, which was another one that came out in the last couple years, it would be very, um, uh, it would be a very good thing for you to go and see those, those two movies. They capture the bigotry or if you ever get the chance to see uh, some other ones along the way, including glory. But the point of the matter is that because God doesn't change, that 
should, in obedience, make us concerned about the things that God is eternally concerned about. That uh, the poor and the outcast, the widow, the stranger, the sojourner in our midst. Are you with me? Out of God's character, we respond to those kinds of things. As we move through the scripture, we remember that the writer of the book of Hebrews says it this way. Jesus Christ is the same when? Yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging as the second person of the Godhead. He's eternal in his being. He's the eternally begotten son of God. In the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews, we read again those beautiful words that God is the one who really cannot uh, deny himself. He's really the one who cannot do things that are impossible to his character. So we can trust his covenant fidelity. We can trust his redemptive work. We can trust his mercy as, his, as it is extended to us. Scripture from the beginning to the end, theological writers from the beginning to the end of our days, even right now, attest to the immutability of God. But we have a problem in the modern world, and the modern world's problem is simply that when it comes to God, we'd like to think that God is becoming like we are. In the modern world, we'd like to think that God is going through a series of transitions like Hegel thought when he wrote his phenomenology of mind and spirit in the 19th century. We think that God, is, God must be going through some kind of changes. Now, if God is going through some kind of changes, the logical implication of that is this, that there is some imperfection in God. There's some imperfection in God. That God is not that being than which nothing greater can be conceived, as St. Anselm said, or as Augustine uh, earlier said. Are you with me on this? If God is becoming, there's some imperfection because you're moving away. You're a mutable being. You're moving away from some kind of condition to some new condition. If you're a student, hopefully you are becoming. You are moving. As a Christian, hopefully you are moving. In our particular tradition as Reformed Christians, we believe this life is moving in the direction of holiness, don't we? Of righteousness, of goodness, of moral virtue and purity as we are connected and attached to the living God. The doctrine of immutability is a foundational doctrine in our understanding who God is and in understanding how it is that we can live with great confidence and assurance. In fact, in the history of thought, the doctrine of immutability is really what gives us hope, what gives us life and vitality, what enables us to recognize that the one who has promised a grand thing is the one who's going to bring it about. And the reason that God can bring it about, my brothers and sisters, is because of the character of God, the perfection of God himself as the immutable being. Now, let's look more closely at, was that, was that almost an amen? Oh, my word. <laughs> if somebody starts saying amen, you guys, uh, you guys just aren't going to your next class, because that, that just gets me going. <laughs> Okay, now let's look back at this text that I read. Everybody open their Bible. You know, who's had a class with Frazier? Does Frazier like a text? Yeah, that's what we work on. We work on text. So in light of that, I've been drawing out the implication of this notion that there is no variation, no shadow of turning with God. God is immutable. Now let's go back to the beginning. What is our continual problem in life? Our continual problem as fallen sinners is that we can be deceived. Isn't that true? We can be deceived. We can distort what truth is. We can pervert what it is that we should know better about. We can kind of turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to the truth as it shouts out to us, as it calls out to us to follow. For you see, deception is very simply 
the purposeful evasion of reality and truth to oneself. That's what it is. It's the evasion purposefully of what is true to oneself and also what is true for other people in life. The Christian is someone who ought to live toward a life that is not deceived, a life that is not duped, that does not hold accounts of the world that are not substantiated in some kind of way, do not cling on to uh, rumors or conspiracies that are not actual reflections of the way the world is. So Christians, if you want to be wise, the theme of this particular book that comes down from heaven, what must you not be? Deceived. We have to prepare ourselves. The doctrine practically of the immutability of God is what prepares us to be those who are not deceived. Now, in our fallenness, we're always going to be, be deceived. You know, as a philosopher, I'd like you to think that I get everything right. Well, I don't. And uh, nor do uh, any of the great philosophers that I've associated with in the past. We're all sub, uh, subject because we are becoming, because there is alteration to uh, deceptions at some point. But that doesn't excuse us from wanting to see things a bit more. Now, the immediate passage is about how people are tempted. People are tempted when something is suggested to us as good, either beyond its worth or in absence of its worth. Okay? We're tempted when we misconceive or misconstrue the value of what something is. It's suggested to us, and we adopt the lie. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, the first example is this. Uh, how many of you remember reading about Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay, everybody, almost everybody here can raise their hand. And so what is it that Edmund was infatuated with? Turkish delight. You remember that? Turkish delight. Now, was Turkish delight tasty in itself? Yeah, it was, it was tasty in itself. But he, that is Edmund, overestimated the value of what Turkish delight was. And so he could not get enough of it. He kept striving for it. He kept wanting it. And it led him to do what? It led him to actually engage in a treasonous action against his own kin. That's what happened. And against the inhabitants of Narnia. You see, something that was good, Turkish delight, was skewed in its significance. That's the root of temptation in our lives. Wanting us to see that something that is good beyond the goodness of what that thing is. Either by... Uh, minimizing its goodness or by embellishing its goodness. You with me on that description? From, and we see that pretty consistently. If you think of the last battle, um, some of you remember the last battle from Humanities 103, right? We get to the dwarves. Remember the dwarves? <laughs> They're weird characters in that, in that account, aren't they? And the dwarves are sucking down this delicious meal that, uh, that Aslan has made for them, and they don't even appreciate the goodness that they have. You with me? They diminish the value of the goodness, just like Edmund had embellished the goodness of the Turkish delight. Okay, now look back at the text. Don't be deceived, because why? Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, in the order of things, good and valuable things possess intrinsically by the fact that they've been made by God, called into existence and known by this immutable God, what their value is. Money ha is a value. 
power has some value, honor has some value, but they cannot be um, valued in a way that exceeds the value that they are. You with me on that? To have them exceed or be diminished in the value that they are is an affront against the living God who has called those things into being, who has said this is valuable in the way that it is valuable. Objectively, this is valuable in the way that God has called it to be. And things are valuable. Things are good insofar as they participate or share in the value that God has ascribed to them in life. Are you with me on that? And so temptation comes along. It says, Livy. It comes along. It says, Livy. Hi, Livy. Uh, it comes along. It says, Livy. This, that, or the other thing is really not so important for you to pursue. So don't worry about it. When God has declared that thing to certainly be the value that it is. And so the diminished value of something. Or says to Catherine... Uh, Catherine, hi Catherine, uh, says to Catherine along the way, uh, listen, you should love this more than you're loving it right now. You should make it more than it is. And we do. We make money more than it is. We make power more than it is. We make position more than it is. We make popularity more than it is. We uh, we think of ourselves more highly than, our, than we ought. And in doing so, what we do is we um, vitiate, we pollute the value that God has ascribed to things that are. And that is the root of temptation in this passage. You with me on that? If you want to understand how temptation and deception is functioning in your lives, there must be a true assessment of what the good is, what it means, how it reflects God himself. Now, what do we need to make that assessment? What do you think? What do we need? The brothers over here. I've, I've had both of you, right? Uh, the, what do we need? Um, what we need is wisdom. The great gift from God that enables us to see the gifts that God has given us and poured out. These gifts are perfect. They're complete. In fact, the word that is used in Greek is a word describing a gift that has some kind of beneficial effect on you. Has a, it's a benefaction, in other words. Now, um, I'm a grandpa. As all of you know, I like to be called Papa by my grandchildren, not, not by other people, but I like to be called, and, unless, it's, unless it's Matt Kikasola who calls me Papa Imp. Uh, but, so Matt can do that as, as my buddy. But, um, but sometimes my grandchildren come over, and some of you have walked by my house, so you kind of know this, and um, old Papa likes things like popsicles. Um, one of the things that I do almost every time I teach a class is afterwards I treat myself in all my effort to popsicles, especially banana popsicles. And you might say, okay, uh, old Papa Frazier, <laughs> overestimating the, the value of popsicles along the way. But what if, what if it is the case that my grandkids come over and I, I, I like... I'll be honest with you, I, I like sugary kind of things. You know, I, I was blessed by the fact that they opened a Dunkin' Donuts out in Chippewa, and they've already gotten a sufficient amount of my money to help keep them open, you know. So some of you like, like do some of you like sugary kinds of things, right? Some, yeah, yeah, we have some sugary kind of people in the back there, right? Now, if I, if I give the gift of a sugary kind of thing continuously to my grandchildren, what do you think my nutritionist dietitian son is going to say to me? <laughs> you should hear what he says to me when he finds out of how I've indulged. That's not a gift that is benefaction. You with me? When a gift is given according to its worth, it's a gift of benefaction. 
It's a gift that is beneficial. It's a gift that brings beatitude. It's a gift, in fact, that enables the kind of transformation of your being into the image and likeness of God. So the good that God declares that we ought to share in as the people of God, those are gifts of benefaction to us, of blessing, of making us more human, of making us to be wise as we discern to walk in this world. Now, our time is just about up. And so when we look at the end of this passage, the call is a call to realize our sharing into the goodness of what things are rooted in the immutability of God because God doesn't make things that are going to alter or change along the way. Their essential features, what philosophers call their form, is something that remains constant even though we might distort it or pervert it in some kind of way. The author shows us one more thing that is a part of the immutability of God, and that's the power of God's will bringing forth from the word of truth the first fruits of his, cre- of his creatures. Now, what does he mean by that? God, in the power of his providence and will, calls through the truth to us, the truth about the value of what things are, so that we might be the first fruits. And what are those first fruits? But people who live with wisdom. People who live with insight. People who live phonetically. People who live with understanding. So that as we approach this world, as we see the denigration of other human beings, as we experience the kind of reductionism that is so deeply rooted in uh, our lives together, the divisiveness and the division that takes place, we should be those who say, because we serve an immutable God, because this God is changeless, because this God has no variation in God's being, this calls us to love the good as the good, to have ordinate love, not inordinate love, not lust, not perversion, but to, not to vitiate the goodness that there is. But we should see the world with wisdom in the way that God has constituted uh, goodness to be, and that's how we should live. Why should we be concerned with the widow? It's so interesting, isn't it? A couple verses later, our writer James says, what about true religion? It's caring for the widow. It's caring for the poor. It's caring for the outcast. It's caring for the infirmed. It's making sure that there's not partiality, right? Those things are a part of this good design that God has made. Now, all of the created order, you followers of Jesus, all of the created order is moving in the direction of that final consummation where the goodness of the things are that God has made and claimed will be restored to the fullness of the goodness that they are. And then finally, in this consummation, we will, as God's people, understand wisely and, in, and even intuitively in our lives the goodness of the new heavens and the new earth where they reflect the invariable, the constant, the immutable and infallible God. God is not like a mutant teenage, uh, what are those things? Turtle. God's not like that. God is constantly immutable and will continue to sustain things on the basis of his immutability and calls you as well to appreciate with wisdom every good and perfect gift that God has declared from above. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you are the immutable one, the eternal God, our Father, who calls us into being and who has declared things to be good and right and true and beautiful and magnificent. We pray our mind would be measured by yours. We pray that our hearts would be changed so that we might appreciate 
the objective, real value of those things that you've called into being and existence. So enable us, O God, by your spirit to follow you in wisdom as we serve the God who is unchanging. And now, may the mercy of God Almighty transform you. And as people, what we say is this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, extol him.